Welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, digging beneath the surface to uncover the hidden ideas that shape us, the church, and our culture. I'm Brian Fisher, and this is episode 21. What would you say? Well, welcome back. We're in the middle of season two, and we're focusing on the discipleship dilemma. For our character to be formed more like that of Jesus, we desire to know his heart, and we also commit to uncovering our own hearts. Exploring our hearts and stories is not necessarily a hallmark of modern Christianity, thus the dilemma. Our hearts are deceptive, they're mysterious, complex, but that doesn't mean we can't explore them. Fortunately, we're all wired with eight indicators that display the genuine ideas that power and govern us. We just need to pay attention to them with God and a trusted friend. We call this process heart view, and we're spending this season studying what it is and how to practice it. Today, we're going to explore the sixth heart view indicator, our words. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we dig in. Season one, which is the first 13 episodes, is an introduction to the great omission and deep discipleship and these hidden ideas that power and govern us. At the end of that season, we noted that our current era suffers from three primary problems that cause some further challenges to our spiritual formation. The discipleship dilemma, the formation gap, and the Forgotten Kingdom. We're obviously digging into the Discipleship Dilemma right here in Season 2. Then in Season 3, we'll head into a full exploration of the Formation Gap. Plus, sometime in Season 3, I'll be joined regularly by a new co-host, so that you and I don't have to listen to just me every week. Down the road in Season 4, we'll then take a look at the Forgotten Kingdom. Lots of great stuff ahead. Thanks for taking this journey with me. Alright, let's dig in. Despite what we think we believe about God and others, ourselves, and creation, our hearts often embrace other ideas. We tend to function from six core ideas, fundamental assumptions buried deep into the recesses of our hearts, and these have a profound influence on how we live. Who are we? What are we? What are we worth? What authority do we have? What is our purpose? And what or whom do we truly love or desire? Everybody struggles with these core ideas all the time, though many of us just aren't conscious of it. There are two sets of ideas, one from the kingdom of light and one from the kingdom of darkness. We embrace dark core ideas for all sorts of reasons. Most of our ideas are formed when we're very young, and we function from those ideas for the rest of our lives, often transposing those initial ideas onto our relationships today, including our relationship with God. Think about the young woman whose heart formed around an idea that she was only valuable when she behaved a certain way growing up. So even though she worships God and reads her Bible, her heart may still function from a performance-based idea system. If she performs well for God and others, her heart rests in that value. But if she messes up, if she sins, disappoints someone, or someone harms her, her heart may begin to crumble because it embraces a dark idea of value that's actually based on her performance. When she doesn't or can't perform well, her heart will express that confusion. She's probably not conscious of this core idea, but it shows up in her eight indicators. Her thoughts, her emotions, her health, her behavior, relationships, her words, and how she uses time and money. She may berate herself when she messes up and she may even struggle with anxiety. She may be overly focused on her health or may not care much at all about it. 
She may leave relationships when she feels she isn't performing well, and she probably uses her time in ways that validate her performance. She's overly committed to work and church activities, and she struggles with burnout, but she won't stop because she believes that resting is a sign of weakness and underperformance. Another example is a man who grew up with a controlling parent, so he might have dark ideas of power. He seeks to control his environment because that's how his heart was formed. He may marry a subservient wife, someone who is wonderful and nice, but also enabling and indecisive. His kids grow up in a home that isn't just disciplined and orderly, it's subconsciously molded around making sure the father isn't embarrassed or questioned. That doesn't mean there's abuse, it just means the children don't have much freedom to explore or to fail, or certainly to question authority. He probably works in a job that appears stable and secure, one in which he unconsciously seeks to cultivate predictability. If he's an entrepreneur, he starts companies that are overly dependent on him. He has difficulty delegating. He has difficulty trusting others to do good work. He may micromanage or practice what's called dive bomb management, coming at the last minute to continually save the day. He may be a warden when it comes to money. He keeps an overly tight rein on finances and his home and the workplace because his heart was formed in the idea that power represents security and comfort. He will unconsciously attempt to control all sorts of variables, most of which are actually out of his control. Again, he may be a wonderful Christian man. He may serve at church and lead a small group. From the outside, his family probably looks like they have it all together. And they probably think they do. But his heart is embracing a core idea of power that actually belongs to the kingdom of darkness. And he's passing it on to his wife and kids. And it's inhibiting his spiritual formation to become more like Jesus and most likely hurting his loved ones. Unless we're intentional and trained at exploring our eight heart view indicators, we plow through life thinking we're becoming mature disciples because of the number of church activities we do or the number of Bible verses we memorize. Those are all good things, but our hearts may not become more like the heart of Jesus. We may just be gathering information about Jesus in the Bible. We may be becoming educated converts and not apprenticing disciples. I mentioned last episode that this sixth indicator, our words, may not be the least reliable of the eight. I don't mean that words aren't an effective way of uncovering our hearts. Exploring our words is a fantastic way of delving into our ideas and desires. But talk really can be cheap, and we tend to be fabulous, pretty sophisticated liars to ourselves and to others. Christians are infamous for saying Christian words and phrases in all sorts of circumstances, hoping to score some points. How many times has someone said, I'll pray for you, as you realize they weren't paying attention to the need you just expressed, and they have no intention of praying for you? But since we spend so much time talking and using our words, they're vital indicators of what's really going on in our hearts. And exploring them really is a fascinating practice. Jesus had a lot to say about words. In Matthew 12, he said this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. But the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. 
For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Not that we have any real doubt, but if you're questioning whether our words are indicators of the desires in our hearts, I'll just repeat verse 34. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. James had some direct things to say about words, although his entire epistle is pretty blunt. In chapter 3, Jesus' half-brother says this, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So let's explore just a few ways that our words, whether spoken or written, point us to the deepest parts, the ideas, in our hearts. We're going to look at three things. The volume of words we use, the words we use when we aren't thinking, and the words we don't say. So let's start off by talking about our volume of words. So if you're like me, you may have some friends who are rather talkative folks. While it seems to be true that men overall tend to use fewer words than women in day-to-day -day communication, being loquacious isn't always gender-specific. And certainly, folks with extroverted, excitable characteristics can be talkative. That's just part of their personality. And others are verbal processors. They think out loud. They use lots of words because that's how they sort out information. But there's a difference between someone who may just like to talk a lot and someone who dominates a conversation, who won't take a breath, and most importantly, is a very poor listener. They may be great storytellers, have some insightful comments, but let's be honest, they come across as domineering, impolite, maybe a touch arrogant and selfish. At some point, we end up concluding that a hyper-talkative person just doesn't really care about anyone else's story or opinion. They're too busy sharing their own. That's a pretty clear indication of certain desires and ideas in their hearts. Whether they're trying to prove themselves, or gain status, intimidate someone, or attempting to prevent someone else from asking a question that they may not know the answer to, a hyper-talkative person is generally someone who has control issues, insecurities, or a deep need for attention. And these symptoms point back to those six core ideas. Someone who controls the conversation probably has dark ideas of power. Maybe ideas of value and identity. They aren't serving the person they're talking to, they're exerting power over them. Someone who exerts power is generally someone who has flawed ideas of identity. Instead of seeing themselves and other people as equal, unique human beings created in God's image, they unconsciously view themselves as better, and usually that means they're deeply insecure. The Gospels only provide insight into a small fraction of Jesus' social interactions while he was on the planet, but it's pretty clear that Jesus measured his words carefully and was deeply and intentionally engaged with people. He listened very carefully. He was intuitive, challenging, and at times uncomfortable in the way he probed people's hearts. 
His conversation with the Syrophoenician woman is one of my all-time favorite stories. It's in Matthew 15. Jesus appears to ignore this Gentile woman who is begging him to heal her demon-possessed little daughter. The disciples, they get annoyed, as they often seem to get, and Jesus further dismisses the woman by saying that he came for the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, he didn't come for Gentiles, for her. She persists, and now it seems that Jesus actually insults her. He tells her it isn't good to give children's bread to the dogs. But she takes his comment and turns it around, reminding Jesus that even the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall off the table. She recognizes Jesus had come initially for the nation of Israel and accepts her position as a Gentile, and yet still begs him to heal her daughter. We realize that Jesus has been testing her, inviting her into a deeper engagement with him, and she goes there with him. He recognizes and compliments her faith, and he heals her daughter. As always, Jesus is far more concerned about the heart than he is about surface characteristics. It's a striking exchange, and it shows just how intentional, attuned, and even curious Jesus is. First, he appears to ignore her, then he makes it clear that she isn't in his target audience. And then he reminds her of how Jewish society viewed her, not very favorably, all in a gentle process of uncovering her heart and the depth of her faith, and most likely giving his disciples another much-needed lesson in the process. This type of social interaction requires a heart that is purposefully bent towards learning about other people, about wanting to know them, and not just the surface stuff we all talk about at church. We desire to deepen our understanding of the actual condition of other people's hearts. And we simply can't do that if we're the only ones talking. Proverbs is filled with instructions about our speech. One of my favorites is in chapter 10. Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Mark Twain said, The right word may be effective, but no word was ever as effective as a rightly timed pause. And French philosopher Voltaire said the secret of being boring is to say everything. Many people who are hyper-talkative and thus poor listeners seem to be oblivious to this indicator, and they probably are, maybe willfully so. But someone whose heart is growing more and more into the heart of Jesus talks, but is also deeply interested in listening, learning, and looking for opportunities to dig deeper with the people around them. Now, some writers will claim that mature Christians never talk about themselves because they're so focused on others. I think that's a stretch. Remember, we love others as we love ourselves. You have something to offer. Your story, your perspective, your ideas are worth sharing with others at the right time and in the right context. Jesus shared himself rather freely and openly with certain types of people. He readily engaged in two-way conversation, and he talked about his story, his mission, and his heart when it was appropriate to do so. Of course, there's the flip side of the hyper-talkative, and that's the verbal recluse. That's someone who is so shy, so introverted, and so quiet that there's little chance to know them even if we wanted to. Again, there's probably a personality factor here. Not every quiet person has dark ideas in their heart, but certainly someone who is hard to communicate with may well have dark ideas of identity, value, purpose, and maybe even love deep down in the edifices of their hearts. In the main, we humans tend to be healthiest when we function in moderation. Typically, if we're extreme in our thoughts or emotions or behaviors or words, that's an indication of something wrong in our hearts. So, is it okay if we're talkative or quieter? Sure. But if we're so talkative that we don't listen, or if we're so quiet we struggle to socialize, 
those are pretty clear signs of broken desires and wounds down in our hearts. A second way to explore our words as indicators of what's going on in our hearts is to pay attention to what we say when we don't have time to prepare. What we say off the cuff, when we're caught off guard or emotional, or when we just respond to something without thinking about it. I've mentioned that we tend to be sophisticated liars when it comes to our words. In our episode on relationships, we talked about three categories of people. Garden variety sinners, wicked people, and evil people. Wicked and evil people are so steeped in ideas of darkness that lying is often their default setting. Our enemy is the father of lies and there is no truth in him. He lies as a matter of course. For wicked and evil people, yes, even those in the church, lying is just what they do. They don't even think about it. But for garden variety sinners, we must often lie when we have a few seconds or moments to think about what we're about to say and we craft our words carefully for our own advantage. Now, by the way, thinking about what we're going to say is also how we might avoid lying. We may realize our impulse is to lie to protect ourselves and to avoid responsibility or to hurt someone, and the Holy Spirit or our conscience prompts us to stop and pause, consider the outcome of what we're about to say. We know we're about to sin with our words, so we change our words, so they reflect the kingdom of light. This is why it's so fascinating to explore the words we say when we don't think about it. We don't have time to filter or contemplate the outcome of our words, and our heart just lets loose. We might call these our instinctual words. What sort of things do we say off the cuff? You might discover that your heart bends towards the kingdom of light a lot. When someone is hurting, you speak words of grace and compassion without thinking about it instinctually. When someone cuts you off in traffic, your immediate non-thinking response is to ignore their mistake and go about your day. You don't say any words. Or perhaps you note the fact they cut you off in traffic with some frustration, which you certainly have the right to do, but your words don't include any colorful descriptions of the other driver, if you know what I mean. I think you know what I mean. When a family member is disrespectful to you, your non-thinking response may point out their error, but in a way that promotes respect. When you see an injustice, your instinct is to call it out in clear terms while still recognizing that every human being bears the image of God. Sometimes our instinctual words indicate a heart that is at rest in the kingdom of light. But sometimes our instinctual words uncover some other things in our hearts. A sharp word to a spouse. An instinctual, callous word to our kids. Expressing frustration with someone, but in a way that doesn't honor them. So we need to take some care here. I think it's obvious we live in a time where the culture gets offended by just about everything. It's becoming more and more uncomfortable to speak the truth to joke about ourselves or others, or just talk and chat freely. This is my opinion, but I think we've swung the pendulum so far that it's becoming difficult to have simple conversations with people without someone getting bent out of shape. That's because our culture has elevated the self over just about everything else. So I'm not talking about appropriate, challenging, or provocative, or even harsh words. There's a proper time and place for that type of speech. Remember, Jesus used some very harsh language and even some name-calling when dealing with certain types of people. You can only imagine how offended people would get with Jesus if he were physically here today. I imagine we'd kill him all over again. But Jesus' heart was always oriented towards love. Ours is not always oriented in that direction. So if we have the courage, we might want to take an inventory of the words we say instinctually, the things we say without thinking about them. And if we have even more courage, 
we can ask our family members about our instinctual words. Chances are we've forgotten some of the things we've said, and chances are those closest to us haven't forgotten those words. Okay, lastly, we can learn about our hearts and the hearts of those around us by paying attention to what we don't say. When our two boys were growing up, I often shared with them these two important lessons. The first, the most important decisions you'll make are the God you serve and the woman you marry. And the second was that one of the best ways to evaluate yourself and those around you is to observe these three things in this order. Number one, how someone behaves. Number two, what they don't say, followed by number three, what they say. How do we evaluate somebody, how they behave, what they don't say, and then what they say? If we want to determine someone's character, it's a pretty decent way to size them up. Pay attention to what they do. Carefully note what they don't say, then listen to their words. We live in an age where lying and corruption in the political sphere is so commonplace that we're sort of surprised when somebody actually speaks the truth. But their character comes out in their behavior and in what they purposely don't talk about. We learn a ton about ourselves and those around us by paying attention to what isn't said, to how someone doesn't engage or how someone avoids a topic or a discussion, to what they volunteer and what they hold back. This requires paying close attention when we engage with someone, but it also implies that we aren't the only ones talking. Many people avoid engaging in conversation about areas that just prick their hearts. I've had friends throughout my life who've been around for years, and they live entirely above the surface. They don't talk about work, sports, theology, church, and maybe even family, but anytime they're invited to dig under that surface to talk about desires and ideas, wounds, or story, that's not a place they're going to go. And I'm not talking about the first time we meet someone. I'm talking about friends, family members, and supposedly close relationships. Again, what the Bible tells us about Jesus' social interaction shows a man who continually cut through the small talk and goes straight down into the heart, constantly inviting others to engage him below the surface. He was consistently healing, restoring, challenging, provoking his disciples and his followers to crawl through the legalism and the power structures and the social mores, the religiosity and the unconscious ideas and the culture of his time, all to meet him at the very depth of who we are. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, present with us, around us, with us, and even in us, even into the very depths of our hearts where our deepest fears and anxieties and hurts and wounds take root. Many of us live our lives in willful or unconscious ignorance of these desires and ideas that govern us, but that's exactly where Jesus invites us to meet him, if we're willing to join him there. And sometimes, if we carefully pay attention to how much we say, what we say when we aren't thinking, and what we intentionally avoid saying, we'll get a peek at the recesses of our hearts. But let's do more than just peek. A person who wants to be spiritually formed into the likeness of Jesus digs into the roots and the soil and allows God and others to do the hard work of true, difficult, and sometimes painful, genuine discipleship. And that is so much more than a simple list of intellectual beliefs that we consent to. Remember, truth is a person. Grace is a person. Mercy is a person. Redemption is a person. Love is a person. Candidly, this is just not the ethos of modern Christianity. 
I'm not sure how many of us have experienced with people who embody what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. People who are focused and intentional about knowing one another truly, who willingly enter into each other's sufferings and show a deep desire to know somebody else's story. Even when that suffering and pain lasts longer than most Christians think it should. There's a profound difference between a friend who quotes some Bible verses to you or sends you a nice text every few weeks compared to a friend who willingly sits with you, who simply gives you the gift of presence week after week, month after month, year after year. We tend to either focus on doctrine and a set of intellectual beliefs, or we focus on spiritual and emotional experiences that kind of keep us going. I'm not invalidating either of those. We do need to have a Christian worldview and sound doctrine, and we should expect our relationship with Jesus and the church to have moments of profound emotion. But we can have the world's best doctrine and have wonderful emotional worship experiences and still not look any more like Jesus than we did a few years ago. Jesus wants our hearts and all the muck and the dirt and the brokenness and the woundedness and the sin and the bad ideas and the confusion and the wonder and the joy and the awe that sit down there. But he also strikes me as a gentleman. He is constantly inviting us into our roots and soil, but he typically doesn't push it. So let's continue our journey together as we invite Jesus and trusted friends into immersive communities of intentional formation so that we heal and so that we can view our words as indicators of our hearts, really for the end game, the point, so that we learn to love like Jesus loves. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're interested in forming or joining one of these immersive communities of formation, what we call greenhouses, just check out the website at soilandroots.org and click on the tab that says Start a Greenhouse. If you like the podcast, share the podcast. The Soil and Roots community grows as you spread the word, and thanks for doing that. Feel free to reach out to us via email at fish at soilandroots.org, and we'll see you next time.